Well, good morning. What a week it has been. <clears throat> like he said, I am so grateful that Hurricane Ian did not hit us directly. Um, but of course, it has impacted our friends and family and neighbors in Southwest Florida. Um, we want to continue, of course, to be in prayer for them throughout the week, but also I'd uh, like to let you know we are going to uh, organize some relief efforts. Um, I'll be giving you more information. Uh, actually, the pastor of the Cape Coral Vineyard, uh, uh, Jamie, uh, is a good friend. And um, uh, Jamie, uh, they actually live on one of the islands that the bridge was destroyed. They couldn't get, from, they couldn't get off the island until yesterday, uh, got to the church building. So I guess they're actually living in the church building this weekend. Um, and uh, uh, they, they said that their home, basically uh, everything in their home has been uh, uh, rendered unusable. <laughs> so um, uh, we're lifting them up in prayer and, and uh, continuing to find out more. Um, but we're going to uh, give you a couple of different ways that you can give uh, uh, toward that. Uh, one, we're going to uh, organize something here in the way of giving so that we can uh, give some uh, things directly. Uh, and like I said, I'll be giving you more information about that as we get some things to unfold. I don't want you to do it yet <clears throat> because uh, I don't want to just gather a bunch of stuff that people don't want um, or something like that. Um, if you would like to do something in the, in the immediate, um, Convoy of Hope is one of our partners. Um, and so I would encourage you that, of course, feel free to give to Convoy of Hope. Uh, I know that they do a great job and uh, we will be partnering with them as well, um, but we will be organizing some things to give directly to uh, ministry there at the Cape Vineyard and, um, uh, the, uh, and to help the families there in that, uh, in that congregation. Um, so, and then we'll be doing some, like I said, some relief efforts, taking some people down there to work. All right, with that said, we are so grateful. Uh, let's, uh, let's just take a moment, let's pray for them, shall we? Father God, we want to lift up to you our friends and family, uh, our, those that uh, have been so deeply affected by the, the impact of Ian. Uh, we are mindful of the fact that it was very much headed our direction and that uh, even as we found relief, others uh, were taken by surprise and are suffering the, the consequences of that. Uh, Lord, so we pray for your mercy upon them and their families. We pray for uh, just your incredible grace to be poured out. We recognize that as followers of Christ that we are not immune to the trials and tribulations of this life. And so, Father, we're asking for just grace upon grace to be on them, uh, the incredible favor on their lives in this moment, uh, and that, Father, you would direct our steps now as we react as the body of Christ, as we uh, act with compassion and mercy, help us direct our steps that we might be your hands and feet as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend, we had a great time with Mark DuPont. I hope you were blessed by his ministry among us. Uh, we had numerous reports of some healings. And, uh, but if you have not shared what uh, happened with you, uh, let me encourage you to uh, get around to us and share that with us. We'd like to know uh, just the wide impact of that ministry. It's always a great time when he is here. But today, we are picking up in the letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Chapter 13. And, um, you know, uh, he, uh, a moment ago, Richard was talking about gratefulness. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, as, I, you know, as we rounded the corner into chapter 13... Uh, and I was looking down the barrel of chapter 13. You can pick up my hesitancy there. <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, man, I am grateful that I live in this country when I have to preach this text and not, like, say, in North Korea to talk about this text. But it is a difficult text, uh, and so uh, we are going to uh, uh, tackle it head on this morning. And so I uh, pray for your grace uh, toward me as we tackle it. But let's kind of set it in the, in the perfect setting, right? Because so often, chapter 13 is talked about completely disconnected from the rest of the book, and specifically out of context to the immediate chapters around it, which is unfortunate, because then when we talk about it, uh, we're treating it whole, you know, wholly on its own instead of 
holistically in where it fits in the context of the passage and why it's there. Now, if you'll remember, chapters 1 through 4, we were talking primarily about this idea of the old creation, that the revelation of creation is God's way of revealing to us His goodness, His kindness, His nature, and that how the fall explains the gap between creation and God, the things that God wants for us and the things that are, and how we look at those things, we can see His goodness, His kindness, and His mercy and all of those things, and yet we recognize that there is something inherently wrong in the world post the fall. Whether we'd ever read uh, from Genesis chapter 3 or not, we know that there is a contrast between the goodness of God and the things that happen in the world. We know deep within our knower, within our spirit, that there is something that reveals to us from nature that things ought to be a certain way. And when they're not, we recognize those things as troublesome. We recognize them as sin. We recognize them as destructive uh, to humanity. And so we look at the impact of those things and recognize that a good God has made a good creation, and yet there is sin in the world. Chapters 5 through 8 then explain this whole concept of being a new creation, with chapter 8 as the epicenter or the apex of the letter, telling us how all of creation, the, the entire cosmos, is crying out, yearning for the revelation of the sons of God. That is for the people of God to be revealed in their fullness, for them to walk in the fullness of their calling, who God has shaped them to be, who God is calling us to be, so that when the sons of God are revealed, that the all of creation celebrates. It is bringing restoration to all of creation as we walk out this new life in Christ even in the midst of a fallen world. And yet there's this expectation that there is a day coming in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The day is coming and yet is not, and so we live in that tension of the now and the not yet. The now of God's kingdom come even into a fallen world, and yet longing for that day when all of creation will receive its restoration, even as we long for the restoration of these earthly bodies. Amen? Anybody especially feeling that today? Okay. Chapter 12 then, chapters 9 through 12, focus on the transformational process. We spent a couple of weeks in chapter 12 talking about how it's a turning point in the letter, several intricate statements often overlooked, um, but just how it is significant to the overarching themes of the letter. And that brings us then to chapter 13 today one of the most controversial chapters in the whole letter. It's often read, as I said, all by itself without the context, especially without looking at chapter 12. And so when it's read that way, it seems to be disconnected from the entirety of the letter. It seems to have nothing to do with what we just talked about two weeks ago. Now, chapter 12 ended with making the point that all of our gifts... And our natural abilities, everything that we have that is good, is from the Holy Spirit. And those things are given to us, not just for our own sake, but for the betterment of the entire body of Christ. And that any gift exercised, no matter how powerfully, without love for the larger body of Christ, is selfish and defies the actual intent of why the gift was given. However, chapter 12 also pointed out that all of God's gifts and callings are given without repentance. Therefore, meaning that once God has given those things to us, He does not take them back from us based on performance. In other words, they were not given to us based on performance. They are not taken away based on performance. They were given without regard to those things. That's why we do not determine what is right based on spiritual power church growth, or outward success. I know of healthy large churches. I know of sick, dysfunctional large churches. I've worked for both. Sometimes they were the same congregation. Likewise, I know of healthy small churches, and I know of unhealthy small churches. I know spiritually mature Christian leaders who move powerfully in the gifts of the Spirit, and I know some really mature saints who seemingly do not. I would challenge that. I think they do. I just think that 
they think they're doing it simply because out of, out of the goodness of their hearts and that they're just, oh, really good at those things. I know spiritually immature leaders who can move in great power, and they're frightening to me. And I know spiritually immature leaders who do not, thankfully. We do not determine righteousness, that is, being right in covenant relationship with God, based on externals, specifically superficial externals, or people's spiritual gifting. Instead, we are concerned with the heart. By the overall witness, the fruit of a person's life, that is how we measure spiritual maturity. Those can only be seen close up and personal. They cannot be measured by what is seen from afar. In this context, Paul urged the church to be certain that their motive was that of love for the brethren. And Paul said that regardless of gifting, that love must be the modus operandi for their actions. He urges them not to repay evil with evil, and that is what sets us up, cues us up for chapter 13. So let's take a look at chapter 13 together. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to be using the English Standard Version. Please follow along whatever translation if you, that you have in your lap. That one's my favorite. If you're using a phone or a tablet, would you set that to silent for the sake of those around you? Let's read Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger uh, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom what revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So the context of not repaying evil for evil and to do what is good, right, noble, and just, regardless of the behavior of others, is the end of chapter 12 that segues into this chapter when we're talking about the governing authorities. Let that just sink in for just a moment, right? You know, as Americans... As sons and daughters of the American Revolution, this is a tough passage, isn't it? 
I, for one, love my country. I, I've told you before, my son-in-law is in the Army. My oldest son works for the Department of Defense. Grateful for both of them and for the work they do. I've lived outside the United States and traveled abroad a bit. And I have repeatedly given thanks for the nation I live in when I compare it with other places. That in mind, please hear me say this cautiously. That in mind, you and I can, and the operative word being can, C-A-N, right? We can function as followers of the Messiah under any form of government and still be faithful to God. Hello? I find that challenging. I just got to be honest. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful. But even under the most oppressive form of government, if we look to the Bible for what form of government is best, actually we find very little in the Bible that suggests anything except monarchy. You, you know that thing that we overthrew about 200 plus years ago. Of course, the difference is, is that the monarchy they're talking about is Jesus, King Jesus, uh, ruling and reigning. And so, uh, we don't, otherwise, we really don't see the Bible advocate any particular human government or power structure. It only calls us to live peaceably under that which we currently live. Now, the easy answer for us in a land of freedom is to tell people we'll simply obey the laws of the land. I, I don't know about you, but I've oftentimes, even when I've seen different things happen to people, I go, well, you, know, you should have obeyed the instructions or, or whatever and, and thought, you know, uh, like, don't put yourself in a bad situation. Other times, I have been in situations where it seemed that no matter what somebody did, they couldn't follow the instructions well enough to keep from being mistreated. We've had numerous challenges to law and order over the past three years, haven't we? And so I can't bury my head in the sand and just simply give you an easy answer or just kind of skate through this text in a way that would make me feel really, you know, um, safe or uh, make you feel more comfortable. The text goes on to tell the readers to do what is right regardless of what anyone else does, including the behavior of governing authorities. So if they do what is evil, that doesn't become a license for you and I to do evil. If the law of the land is evil, you don't do evil. We can start that conversation in an easy way. The law of the land today allows consenting adults to have sex with one another regardless of whether or not it's moral or the number of people involved. Doesn't mean that you have to participate. Right? As Christians, we are called to have a higher sexual ethic than that. And so regardless of the law of the land, we have some understanding that, that we are called to operate in a different ethic regardless of whatever the ethic of the day is. That's the kind of the easy part of the conversation, right? When, when we're coming up toward this, we can go, well, we should behave in a Christ-like way. We have a different ethic on a number of moral issues, despite laws to the contrary. We're called to live in step with God's law rather than society's laws. Things like um, abortion. I can remember years ago, when the conversation began about blowing up clinics and hearing Christian leaders justify the action, including James Dobson, which many of you in this room know who I'm talking about when I say that name. Others of you don't. In part, the reason why you don't know that name very well anymore is that's where he started to lose a whole lot of credibility. Blowing up clinics is doing evil to combat evil. Peaceful objection and kind sidewalk counseling can be a very effective means of discouraging an abortion. 
But justifying combat behavior, calling it a culture war, is just plain breaking the law. We don't fight evil with evil. We can consider that the global church is currently thriving in a number of countries where the gospel is outlawed, like Iran, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, and Afghanistan. It's also thriving in a number of lands where it's severely restricted, like China, Vietnam, and Iraq. Those Christians are then technically breaking the law through subversion. It's not open hostility. It's not looking to do evil. It is doing good in the face of evil. That makes the conversation a little more difficult. Doing good, even when the law doesn't allow the good to be done. On the other hand, the gospel is not thriving in democratic lands like the USA, Canada, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Australia, where the gospel is free to be proclaimed. In those places, we seem to be doing really poorly and shrinking. So We have to be cautious with equating our preferred form of government with the gospel or the kingdom of God. Hello? that make you as uncomfortable as it makes me? Please do not like now take my words and twist them and say, Hal's advocating that we need to live under great oppression. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying that we ought to take advantage of the opportunities we're given. And I'm simply saying the gospel can thrive any place. The gospel can thrive any place without having to overthrow the government or the laws that are contrary to the Bible. But it does put into serious tension our American narrative of what it means to be a Christian nation, doesn't it? If the gospel is thriving in lands where it's illegal, but it's not thriving here where it is legal. And the interesting thing is, is what Paul says we should do in the face of government. Keep in mind, <clears throat> if you will, if you'll remember, Paul was a citizen of both Rome and Israel. Rome had been a full republic until Augustus Caesar became emperor, so Rome became an empire before Jesus was born. On the one hand, the reality is that it was an oppressive government in some ways. On the other hand, Rome still functioned in many ways as a constitutional monarchy at the local level, much like we think of uh, parts of Europe, UK, Holland, etc. Roman citizens still voted on the local level, meaning Paul had a vote. Now, it's not mentioned in the Bible whether Paul ever voted or not, and we're not going to make an argument from silence. That's bad hermeneutics. Paul could have voted in every election. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. You don't know. Those records weren't preserved. You and I have no idea. But I do know this. I know that Paul, as a Roman citizen, had the right to vote and the scripture completely just skips that discussion. Some would say, well, that's because the Bible isn't political. <laughs> you know, the real meaning of the word politics is talking about anything that's done in group decision for the sake and well-being of others. So in some sense... Everything is politics. In another sense, I would say you're right. The Bible's not political. In other words, it isn't advocating a particular political policy as much as it's talking about the way we treat people, the way that we do things, how we conduct ourselves in the face of those things, how we respond. 
we might even think about how we respond in this moment as the government is responding to some of the things that happened uh, down in southwest Florida and uh, across uh, the stretch, uh, you know, as it made its way toward the Jacksonville area. And uh, we are waiting for the government to do some of those things. We have uh, paid our tax dollars, and we're hoping that those things will kick in and do what they're supposed to do. That's why we give into those, uh, you know, uh, uh, pay those taxes. Some of what Paul was talking about there, that we don't pay taxes for nothing. And yet, there's this other part where you and I are called to respond as a people to do what is good for the sake of others at large, to be a people of mercy, of kindness, to extend the kingdom of God to people regardless of what anyone else is doing. Regardless. Paul, in his admonition to the church, was do what is right regardless. He never addresses anything about voting or or government in particular, but what we do know is that as Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire, the church literally overcame the power of Rome. In one of the uh, volumes on the history of the world by Will Durant, a a writer uh, in the 1950s uh, who wrote a multi-volume set on the history of the world, uh, Will Durant uh, was an atheist, and one of the volumes in his set on the history of the world was called Caesar and Christ. It's about that thick, big volume. And the thesis of the book was, remember he's an atheist, The thesis of the book was that Christ defeated Caesar without ever raising a sword, without ever doing anything, but they simply outlived the people of Rome. And his his writings was this admonition of of what a powerful the church was because of the way it lived. Now, in it was a horribly, you know, scathing critique of the modern church uh, in the 1950s, but nonetheless, his, his recognition of, look, these people, the, the Christians, they just so outlived Rome. They didn't have to do anything but just live the gospel that they preached and proclaimed, the things they said they believed. They so lived it. It was so poured out of who they were. As they watched Christians be marched into the sea. Oftentimes soldiers dropped their weapons and marched with the Christians to their death because of how they saw that those Christians conducted themselves. They saw people die in the arena for their faith and they watched that and and it actually had the opposite effect where it was supposed to be entertaining Rome. It caused this great heart cry throughout all of Rome of that there's something wrong about these when these good, kind, helpful people are being treated like this that they didn't need their own publications and journals and Twitter feeds and things like that to defend the gospel against the world because their lives, their conduct, their behavior, not their Facebook, not their private TV stations, not their rag journalism, not their political party. They crushed Rome with love. I know, that's all sappy, and I'm kidding myself, and I mean, it's not going to happen in our day and age, right? I mean, the world's changed. Have people really so inherently changed? Do we actually sin any different than they did in Rome? Maybe a little faster because we have internet. No, nothing new under the sun.
we could come a little more modern. We could look at the spread of Christianity post the Roman Empire. You know what's fascinating is in Great Britain, after the, long after the gospel had arrived, there was tremendous debauchery and, and Great Britain was falling into decay. Throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, there is recorded that like one in four women on the street was a prostitute, that almost you know, every other house was a bar, that, that people were just so um, had given themselves over to every lustful passion. Drunkenness was normative. And the early revivalists of the 18th century were reviled as religious enthusiasts. In theos, that's what the word enthusiast comes from, those who are filled with God. But amazingly, as people were converted, the social climate changed and not long after the politicians followed suit, we could point out that it took nearly a hundred years to change the climate from one to the other. But I would point out to you that it also happened a day and time when which they did not have the internet to pass information along, good or bad, that it happened in a day of shoe leather express and very little printing and things like that. Just as people lived out the gospel, as these religious enthusiasts preached the gospel and called people to a, a life that was different than the life of the communities around them, as the power of the Holy Spirit worked and transformed people, as they began to believe that the power of the gospel was greater than the powers of the world or even as a more powerful than the greatest power on earth at that time, which was the United Kingdom, a global kingdom, And it was that same gospel that led to things like the constitutional monarchy, the change of the social situation all around. See, my real point being, our, our personal politics aside, Paul admonished the church to treat everyone well, even the politicians. Give honor to those whom honor is due. Pay your taxes. Follow the law. Now, you and I can note that Paul did not always obey the authorities. The apostles were known for times in which they said, whether it's right to obey you or God, you decide. But as for us, we will follow the gospel. We will follow God. Sometimes they preached the gospel in places that the gospel was forbidden. As they did... Can I just point out that there were oftentimes consequences? Sometimes God rescued him from the consequences. Sometimes he did not. We get into Acts chapter 12. There are two events that stand in such stark contrast to one another. In Acts 12, James, the brother of John, was murdered by the government of Herod for preaching the gospel. And that seemed to make some people happy. So then a few days later, Herod arrested Peter with the same intent. But through angelic intervention, Peter escaped. And he ran to the house and he's knocking on the door and everybody's like, oh, it must be his angel or something. I mean, nobody can believe it. And then they look out and finally they, they open the door and, and lo and behold, it actually is Peter. And everybody's like, wow, that's cool. Look what God did. He opened the thing to angel. Now, I just want to point out we're still in Acts chapter 12, so can I remind you that James' mother is still grieving her son while the rest of the church is celebrating Peter's escape? How does that feel? How does it feel for the church who loved both Peter and James? How did the family of Stephen feel? about what Paul was saying 
since in fact it was under his direction as Saul of Tarsus that Stephen was murdered in the street. Can I tell you one of the most powerful things about the gospel is that when Paul entered the gates of heaven, that those cheering were the very ones who had been martyred by him? That, that's the power of the gospel. It looks a whole lot different. Looks a whole lot different. I would say if you're looking for an easy faith, I wouldn't recommend the one in the Bible. In addition to obeying the law, Paul suggests that most people have nothing to fear if they're doing the right thing and if we're doing good, if we're respectful to those in authority, most of us will have nothing to fear. In contrast, however, we find that if we respond to those in authority with disrespect, dishonor, and contempt, if we refuse to obey the laws of the land that do not contradict our faith, then the warning that we find there is very clear that we may actually be in opposition to God himself. I hope that's sobering. Two weeks ago, I brought up this problem of people on both sides of the divide in the USA being disrespectful to our last two presidents. Now I'm gone to Medellin, I know. You know, from 2016 to 2020, I saw such blatant disregard of some Christians toward Trump, only then to be outdone by the other side in disrespect toward Biden. I know, you, you, can, you can tell me all the reasons why. And I know, as Americans, we are free to do that. I'm not talking about your citizenship rights. I have my political opinions, I assure you, and they are deeply felt. And I'm not oblivious to the absurdity of some of the social engineering in Western society right now, which is calling good evil and evil good. I am simply saying this. It is never wrong to do what is right, even when society is seemingly collapsing around you. Likewise, it is never right to do evil and justify it. Never. In verse 8 comes the real driver of the chapter. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. That doing what the law commands without love is empty. The, the call here is loving our neighbors, and those neighbors include those who govern. Remember what I said earlier about that Bible stuff not being easy? You see, the point is that everyone, even our government employees, politicians, and other authorities are our neighbors, and part of loving God is loving our neighbors. And so depending on which side of things you're on, then you, that means you are called to love both Trump and Biden as human beings. I know, I'd probably just ruined everybody's day. You can send your emails to no, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> then he says this he says it's important that we wake from our sleep. Cast off the darkness. And then he essentially puts doing these things in respect to those who govern, obeying the authorities, giving respect, paying our taxes, things like that, in the same light as drunkenness, orgies, and sexual immorality. Yeah. 
Anyone struggling right now? You see, the transformed life, the person whose mind has been renewed, can't simply look at the situation through natural eyes. You and I are called upon to look at through the eyes of our Father, the, the same eyes that looked upon our sinful brokenness and said that He so loved the world that He would send His one and only Son. If I just say to you, you know what, you need to love your neighbor, and that includes those politicians you can't stand, here's the reality. Most of us would walk away from something like that and some of us would be irritated. Some of us might feel a little guilt and then try to do differently for a while until something else happens and then we're ramped right back up again, right? But the truth is that your efforts, yours and mine, are only part of the equation. See, loving people is rooted in the transformed life. Loving people is rooted in a renewed mind that knows and does God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And if all I do is tell you to behave, that really isn't the point. In fact, actually, sometimes uh, what we come to in a moment like that is we go, yeah, and then we kind of have this deep resolve that I'm going to do differently, I'm going to respond differently, and then the next situation comes up and we forget all of that in a heat of the moment or whatever else, and then we feel guilty afterwards, or maybe we just say, forget that, I, I just don't think that, you know, the Bible understands my situation or whatever else, and I mean, I, you know, we go through all the rationales, but But if I can't do it, and I don't want to do it, actually what we're talking about is the need to evaluate our heart and our walk with God and our attitude and even my trust in God. See, for some, it, it, it could be just my heart is hard, and I need to like, respond to that. I need to ask the Lord to begin to work on the hardness of my heart. Sometimes because of conflict, because of things that have happened, right? I mean, you and I have very real reasons that we harden our heart in moments. And that's why the Bible says, that's why God gave us divorce, was because our hearts were hard. There are moments when people reach cataclysmic moments in life, and they just can't seem to move forward for anything. And God will make room for the escape, but it doesn't mean it's his heart or his desire. It just simply he recognizes the, the problem within man and our struggles and, and dealing with people. And, and so when we come to these moments where this is like, you know, we, we've had our fill, our mouths, you know, we feel like we've eaten the excrement sandwich. And we go, well, how am I supposed to handle that? But that, can I just tell you, that's where you and I cry out to God for power and, and to work in our lives. And, and so that's one of those moments where you and I fall down on our faces before the Lord and we say, oh, God, help. I, I, my heart is hard. I don't want to respond with love. I don't want to deal with this. For some of us, that may have brought us to a place where our heart is so hard that it's affecting our walk with God. We just, we really, even as, as I'm saying these things, like it, it's angering and frustrating and you might be mad at me. Don't shoot the messenger, please. Because I'm wrestling with this. I am, I, I am preaching better than I'm living. How about you? It can affect my walk with God. It can, it can affect my attitude. Can I just point out that sometimes in moments where I you know, dealing with difficult situations, um, it can affect my trust in God. I might be outwardly be saying all the right things, but deep-seated in my spirit, I'm just like wondering, God, do you know what I'm going through? Do you know the situation? Do you know how this is affecting us, uh, my family, etc.? I mean, and it doesn't have to be the government thing. I mean, it just be any number of things that you and I, where we find ourselves in that moment where we know what the Word of God is telling us to do, what is the expectation of God, and then we find ourselves like down the road over here dealing with things, wrestling through things, working through things, and we go, God, I, just don't, I don't know how I'm going to do that. 
And that's where you and I have to have this confidence in the power of the Spirit of God, and we press in for His help and for His strength in those moments. And if we're not finding it there, that might be where we go back to that place and just say, God, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in this relationship with you. Or sometimes it's one of those moments where we evaluate, maybe, maybe I've just been kind of doing the church thing, God, and I need to really, like, surrender that's not a judgment on you. That is not like uh, uh, belittling anyone. Like, I hope that's the moment that all of us like had somewhere along the way or are going to have somewhere along the way in which we just go, man, I, I, want, I want this that I'm doing to like really be, I don't want to just be here sitting on a Sunday morning taking up time, do you? I, I, I want the power, the transformative power of the gospel to work in me. I want to be the person who Jesus was. And while I know that I will never achieve that perfection, I want his life to be lived through me, don't you? Isn't that why you're here? Isn't that why we gather together to stir one another up to love and to good deeds? I mean, it says stirring one another to love and good deeds, not just stirring one another up. We can do that on Facebook. <laughs> Trust me, I, I, I've gotten my blood stirred up plenty. There's times where I just like take a six-week hiatus because, I'm, you know, I need Jesus. So, <laughs> God, do I trust you with my journey even as I walk in the valley or in the shadow of death? They're legit questions. Am I struggling with real hurt and distrust, or am I in rebellion to God's heart? I mean, that could be a real part of it. I might find myself in a situation where it's like I see all of that, and I know, and I believe that who God is and everything, but the, the truth is, is at that moment, I am so irritated that I really, I've kind of got a high-handed attitude toward God. I know what it says, but talk to the hand. I mean, we wouldn't literally do that. Okay, maybe some of you, but most of it would never literally do that. But the truth is that it, it's a place in our heart where we're just not allowing God to go. So like I said, I, I'm really glad I live in the land that I do to talk about this, because I can just tell you in some places, like, I can't imagine how difficult this conversation would be. So God, I trust you in my journey. I trust you in the walk. I'm struggling with all of these things. So I just want to invite you this morning. If you are struggling with the government this morning, with powers and authorities of this world, why don't you stand where you are? All right. Now, the rest of you who aren't standing and probably ought to be here. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Mostly. Um, can I just invite you? Would you, would you go over and, and, and turn around? Let's extend hands toward them. And we're just going to pray together in unison here. Just, so if you just extend your hands toward them right now, and let's just pray. And So, Father God, we just want to thank you for your son Jesus. I want to thank you for your, your kindness and your mercy to us. And Lord, in the midst of, uh, as we read your word, uh, there is the overwhelming reality that uh, we live in a world that has been broken by the power of sin, that has been devastated not only by the sin of others, but even by our own sin. And so as people who need forgiveness, grace, and mercy, we stand before you in anticipation that you love us, that you are for us, that you do not love us any less than you love our neighbors, and so that you're with us right here and now. I pray for those who are standing today in a sense of uh, solidarity with the Word of God even as they're struggling with your Word? Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit right now? Would you give them great comfort in the, in the midst of this? 
Lord, would you put in their hearts a, a passion for what your word says on these uh, things that we've just read? Would you stir them up and create a heart of compassion for neighbors and f- uh, that in the far reaches of this kingdom here? And help us to have compassion on them as people created in the image of God who need your mercy who need their eyes opened. Lord, we pray for the, sake, for the gospel to be extended to all of our friends, our neighbors, our family, uh, all those who are uh, irritating as well as those that we agree with because we're all in the same need. And so, Father, we, we ask right now your mercy be poured out. We need you, Lord. More of your presence more of your power at work within us. Lord, we cry out, do not leave us in this situation to wallow in our sin, but but that you would strengthen us, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be the people of the gospel, of the people of the kingdom of God above all else. Father, would you give us hearts that are broken with the things that break your heart? Would you give us empathy for those who sin differently than us? Would you stir us up to do what is right, regardless of the situation? To be the people who forgive because we have been forgiven. The people who show mercy because we've been shown mercy. Would you forgive us of our sins? We ask now, would you stir us up to love and good deeds, not only for one another, but for our community at large? And would you send us out to be your hands and feet? In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.